Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with some of the most innovative minds in technology to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they hope to have in the future. From the machine learning programs that are solving some of the world's biggest problems to what AI can do to help fight biological bottlenecks in human thinking, no topic is off limits. So sit back, relax, and maybe take some notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. Can databases be exciting? On this episode of Future of Tech, Matt Kane, the CEO of Couchbase, shares that databases can be very exciting. He describes how data is at the core of digital transformation and therefore how Couchbase is in a prime position to contribute toward this tremendous change. Matt chats about the technological legacy in his family too, and also gives guidance to those trying to find their passion. Tune in to hear more about his take on becoming a great leader, which is really about a process of self-discovery. Enjoy the episode. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs' R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. Welcome to a new episode of Future of Tech. I'm delighted to host today Matt Kane, CEO of Couchbase. Hello, Matt. Hello, it is uh, an honor to be here and looking forward to spending the time, Avishai. So Matt, usually when, when we when we chat, it's about, you know, Couchbase, the company you are uh, CEOing. But I would like to start maybe before we touch Couchbase and, and what it, uh, what is it all about, more about yourself. Can you share with me how you started your technology journey? So I credit my parents for ending up in, in technology. And let me give you a little background as to how that worked. I, I consider myself to be a child of the HP way uh, when I talk about my tech background. I think I totaled up the amount of years of experience that my parents and actually my grandmother had at HP, and it was close to a century of time all in. Think about that as one of the most innovative companies in the history of Silicon Valley, really starting the valley as we know it. And my parents were fortunate enough to join that as a place to make a living more, more so than to have a career. But I think it was a company that was extremely innovative, but also had a culture and set of values that allowed people like my parents to make a living and, and raise a family. And um, when I look back at my childhood, a lot of the lessons that I was learning were shaped for my parents and their values, but also, you know, what my dad in particular was learning in being an executive at HP. You know, I have a sort of location bias having been from California, but the fact that I was going to the beer bus and being around team dinners and talking about the challenges of building an organization and doing the right thing and delivering results, it was just sort of in the background of the conversation from time that, that I was a child. And so as I was getting in, you know, to high school and thinking about what I wanted to do, I uh, kind of went through some different phases at one point, thought I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. 
uh, but decided I wanted to, to be in business. And so I came home, you know, pretty excited as I was thinking about, you know, universities to go to. And I said, dad, I've got it all figured out. I'm going to major in philosophy with a minor in psychology, and I'm going to be off to the races in technology. He said, well, those sound son, like very interesting elective courses, and I'm going to help you choose one of the following four engineering degrees that you're going to be able to pursue because, you know, I wish I would have done that. It would have been a better foundation. Well, fast forward, I sometimes joke around with my dad over a glass of wine. I say, dad, you realize I spend my days now focused on philosophy and psychology. So I was right. And he quickly reminds me, son, the fact that you get to do that is because you were smart enough to get an engineering degree. And I was right. That little banter on on how we ended up, but certainly grateful for their guidance and uh, you know enjoy reflecting on how we got here. Great, great story. What year did you join the Couchbase? Yeah, so I'm actually two days away from my five year anniversary. My first day in the office was April third, but there was an inside deal that I had with the CFO that I wanted my offer letter to be on April first in the United States probably globally is April Fool's Day, which I thought would either be funny or completely tragic, but either way, there would be, there would be a tie back. So uh, April, April 1st of 2017 was my first day in the couch-based system. And this was not your uh, first job. You, you worked uh, in other places. Walk me through the steps of your career. I graduated with an electrical engineering degree from Northwestern. I decided that I'd put all this work into that degree, but wanted to go into a discipline where I applied that technology foundation, not where I was going to go directly engineer. I was very fortunate to find what I think is one of the best programs in technology, certainly at the time in Cisco, where they took people with technical degrees and trained them in sales. And so I was part of what they called the Associate Systems Engineering Program. And for six months, we learned all things uh, Cisco networking, but also negotiation and territory planning and all the things that would go into the function of sales. So it was almost a, a master's program that combined those two things. And then we were thrown out into the field, you know, six months into our career, right at the time of the dot-com bust. So some of my early territories do my planning with my account manager, you know, as the SC, I'd have the attack plan and we drive out to locations. We had a patch from, South San Jose, all the way to Monterey, if you're familiar with the California landscape. And we drive up in these office buildings, you know, looks really nice. We go knock on the door. Hey, we're here to sell Cisco. And there's no one in there. They'd say, well, are you the people here to buy office furniture? And it's like, we're going to have to scrape this chair. So I, I did the SE thing. Then I transitioned over to product management, taking advantage of the fact that the economy was in a little bit of a dip and Cisco wasn't hiring as aggressively. I got a job that I was massively unqualified for. Went back to business school after three years and then decided to kind of do it again. So I came back into a sales role and carried a bag this time as, as an account manager, then moved back into the business unit. And so over a 10-year period, sort of sold it and built it at Cisco, which was pretty rare. But I think at that time and even today, one of the best organizations on the planet to learn you know, how to think through building great products and taking things to market. At that point, I was looking to go to a smaller company. So I went to what I thought was a boutique company, uh, only you know, 15,000 people instead of 65,000 people, which was Symantec, um, and joined on the Veritas side of the business, running billion-dollar software franchise, then became general manager, then became chief product officer, 
had the great opportunity to divest the Veritas business, which is a fascinating experience to go through. We sold the business to Carlisle for right around $7 billion, which I think was the largest private equity transaction in technology at that point, sort of got the company set up for success. And then was having a lot of conversations with big and small companies and was very fortunate to get introduced to the right people and ended up at, at Couchbase after what I think was a great foundation in understanding what scale looks like, understanding what world-class looks like, and probably not understanding too much to be able to take a, a leap of faith into a small company where things aren't built up and perfect. You got to have the belief on the space and the technology and then you know, work really hard to make things happen. Yeah, both Veritas and, and uh, Cisco, great schools. Then you come to Couchbase. Please walk us through what is it all about? What, what, what is Couchbase? First and foremost, Couchbase is a, a database company. We think of ourselves as the modern database for enterprise applications. The way I think about this in layman's terms is applications are literally the gateway between the human world and the digital world. And you and I throughout our, our days have probably touched tens, if not hundreds of applications as we're doing our job, as we're interacting in our personal lives. Literally everything we do is via applications. And at Couchbase, we realized that applications will only go as far as the database that is supporting them. How do you store massive amounts of structured and unstructured information, serve up data in real-time speed and distributed environments so that applications can be rich and personalized and allow enterprises to transform their businesses and use technology to get closer to their customers. Well, we are the thing that makes that happen. And at Couchbase, we've built a very flexible database that allows us to store massive amounts of information and support applications in distributed environments from cloud to the edge in a way that other companies you know, have not solved that problem. But it's fun to be in a car driving down the street with you know, one of my three young daughters and be driving by retail stores and healthcare providers and financial institutions and be on mobile devices and, and be able to tell them that you know, these companies are depending on Couchbase to run their business. And whether you're playing an online game or even up to and including getting surgery, the things that, are, you, that you're dependent on are, are powered by Couchbase. We take great pride in solving some of the most sophisticated and challenging computer science problems to enable the most simple and beautiful and elegant customer experiences in, in applications. So as this uh, is a tech podcast, walk me through some of the behind the scenes. So in other words, you know, there were, the databases were always there. In your Cisco days, there were databases. In the HP days, there were databases. So what changed that needed Couchbase to step in and say, hey, guys, here is something new? If we go back to the still the predominant market share of database technology, I mean, this is a massive addressable market. Analysts believe it's you know, north of 65 billion. Today, the majority of installed databases are what we call relational systems. So the fundamental data model of a relational system was built for applications of the past. They were large monolithic applications where the, the underlying data didn't change that much and they certainly didn't need to provide personalized experiences for thousands of users. And so if you think about applications that enterprises were dependent on, the deployment at a big financial services institution probably wasn't that different than an e-commerce company. Well, as you fast forward 
applications have become more microservice-based and have to be personalized. The way that you interact with an application is fundamentally different than the way I interact, whether it's conscious or subconscious for that application to know who I am, where I am, what I want, even if I'm not asking for it. Well, the way to do that is you need a completely different approach of that underlying data model. Instead of rows and columns, how do you structure the data in a way that you can ingest it, query it, and serve it up in a much more scalable matter? The driving force behind this is the scale and the velocity of the data that you have to manage. And so we think about our approach to databases like Tesla approached cars. If you think about Tesla, what did they do? Well, there's still a gas pedal and a brake pedal and a steering wheel, and the car still needs to go forward and backward and left and right. But under the hood, it's a completely different approach. Couchbase is very similar that under the hood of our database, our engine or our data model has a very flexible schema and can manage structured and unstructured information that allows these applications to perform. And no longer is it these large monolithic applications, but it's this microservice-based personalized applications at scale, where instead of managing terabytes of information, you've got petabytes of information that are constantly changing and accessed by thousands of, of different users. That's what we've built and organized for. Tomorrow's applications, highly interactive, highly personalized. It's the evolutionary difference of what's under the hood and how we structure that data that allows us to do it with a complete paradigm shift from the databases of old. So now I would like to touch maybe a different thing from uh, technology, which obviously relates to, in order to do it, you need, you know, the brightest and, and the best people in the market. And today there is a big, uh, a big fight over every talent. How do you win their hearts? What do you tell them? I think this has been a, a great strength of Couchbase before I joined and, and since I've been here that we have some of the best minds in the database world that have been solving these problems for a long time. The thing that I believed in and in having initial conversations is that every engineer and every leader that I talked to, I felt that they had an ember burning inside of them of a belief that we could go create a beautiful industry-leading database that could transform the industry because of all the dynamics that we've talked about. The image I had is, well, what if we combined all those embers and made a brush fire where the collective group understood that if we stayed committed to what we were doing, we could build something that our grandchildren would know about. Of course, we need to be competitive on you know, compensation and create an amazing environment for people to, what we call, do the best and most fulfilling work of their lives. But I think there has to be a belief, particularly on the technical side, that what we're building matters, that we're committed to excellence, that we are transforming and making the world a better place, and that we're going to do it together. And I think we've stayed committed to that vision in building what we call the next great enterprise software company building the best database. We're now focused on building the best cloud database and doing that together in a way where, you know, we have incredibly high standards for ourselves, And we know that if we execute, we're going to do right by our customers, our employees, and the families they serve will benefit, but never pulling off for a second that commitment of what we can achieve together. What's the meaning behind Couchbase? Why Couchbase? It's a great question. So we get, you know, I get a lot of people from outside the industry asking me if I'm in the furniture business. We are the product of a merger of two companies, which happened in 2011. So there was an open source project, CouchDB, and there was an organization that was running that. 
and then you had Membase. And those two companies came together to be both a cache and a document data store, which is the foundation of what we do today. And that forms Couchbase. But what's interesting is a lot of people don't know the meaning of Couch. It's an acronym that stands for Cluster of Unreliable Commodity Hardware. Back in the days, it was a, well, how do you get more from less? How do you tackle this problem of sharding? How do you start to enable these interactive applications, but remove some of the pain that DBAs had been feeling? And so, you know, we've maintained that meaning. It's in the lore of the company on, you know, the early implementations. And, you know, we're very proud of how we retain that over time. And if we look back on the problems that we were solving then, foundational to what we're able to do now, that's where the name started. And now you can appreciate we have couches everywhere. We were fortunate enough to step into the public markets in July. One of our favorite pictures in front of the NASDAQ is the entire couch-based team sitting on the world's largest red couch in the middle of Times Square. And to be sitting there with one of our founders and, you know, Ravi, who's been heading up, you know, our technology team, it's just such a moment of pride to think about what's possible when you've got a group of people that are committed to innovation and working with great customers that you can make things like that happen. And you've touched two points that I would like to uh, now uh, go a bit deeper into. You, you spoke about, you know, innovation and how you cultivate it. Can you share a bit about, it's your first day, you're coming April 1st, you're entering the offices and, and what? Great question. Not very many people ask me about this. So when you're interviewing for a CEO job, it's a little bit different as you can imagine that you, you don't take those things lightly. So I had never been in the Couchbase facility. We were a startup. And so it's not like we had this fantastic, prolific building. In fact, we we're right off El Camino in, in Mountain View. And the setup is we were on the first floor and the sixth floor, but there was only parking in the basement. And so I drove into the parking lot and I had everything sort of in my mind and shaping out the next few years and the beautiful journey we're going on. And then I realized I had forgot to think about, I don't know how to get into the building. It was the moment of terror, like task one, how do I get into the building? And I happened to run into one of the other executives who, who walked me in. And my first day, I, I literally walked into the building. Fortunately, I'm feeling a sense of relief. And I walked into a conference room that was not big enough for the group that we had, but it was the, what we call the senior leadership team. So probably our 30 or 40 most senior leaders in the room and on the phone. And they were introducing me. One, we're having a CEO change. Two, here's a new guy. What do you think? I made some comments. And then moments after that, it was a company all hands where we did the same thing. And I had gone to go get a coffee in between. And I come back and the all hands had started. And I was like, wait a minute, they, they started without me? Like I would have thought. <laughs> I didn't even get a moment to like look around the room. I feel rushed. I screw up there. Well, and in that, if you asked anybody that was there, I presented our business framework, which I still talk about today, and it's part of every all hands. And that is we have three things that we focus on. First is sustained differentiation. How are we solving problems better than anyone else? What problems are we choosing to solve? What are we not choosing to solve? And how do we think about taking technology and, and helping our customers, but do it in a different approach that will allow us to you know, be a great company? That maps to what we call profitable growth, which is top and bottom line consideration. How do you take that technology to market? Everything from articulating the value proposition to building a sales organization to ensuring you have resources to support your customers. And the third bucket, which is 
drawn on the bottom is the foundation is world-class teams, which is a function of, you know, the people that wear couch face jerseys, as we like to say, and the culture and values that allows them to do their work. And I said, we are going to be committed to each one of these. My job is to make sure that we have harmony between all of them. I am going to be as transparent and open, good and bad, as often as I can be. And here's our attack plan. And the fact that every all hands have been able to come back to the business framework. Now, the details around it have changed, but the, but the structure hasn't. And I think that foundation has been really important for us as we've grown and scaled and you know, have a path to continue to do so as we go forward. You spoke about leadership. How do you inspire your leaders to lead their teams? How do you make sure that they are, you know, walking in the right steps and, and making the right moves? Every day and in every interaction, we think about that. And I think we often come back to our values. We have this construct at Couchbase that we are incredibly proud of, so much so that I put this in, in our S1. We think it's a critical part of how we think about the company. And the construct is... We want all of our employees to be valued. And then once they feel valued and they're part of a team, then we are going to go compete like maniacs to do the right things for our customers and, and create value. And the fact that these values have organically grown from the leadership team and are part of who we are, and we actually recruit people for it, I think it then shows up in leaders' abilities to, to be affected. But you know, if I go through our be valued... Our first value is be a good human always. Second one, act with uncompromised integrity, period. And the third one is serve your family as defined by you. So before we talk about writing code or selling stuff or any of that, we want those three things to be true. And I go back to, maybe it's the bias I had when I was a salesperson. If I'm the last one here and I'm selling the last piece of furniture and I'm closing the door, I can still smile. I can still do that with integrity. I can still be the right person. So why not do that in every interaction with every constituent we have? We control that. And if we create this environment where people realize that they can have a great career and be fulfilled, and just like I benefited from what my parents got from HP, that people can raise their families or help their aging parents or be a contributing member to their society, well, now this is a place that I want to be. And then we can go take those embers and create that brush fire and do amazing things. So we never confuse be valued first, create value second. And I think the, the fact that we have a culture of authenticity and open communication and vulnerability allows our leaders to show up as their best selves and be inspirational and motivational, but from a truly authentic, I love this place, I want to be here, and I'm, I'm bought into the vision. So we talk about it incessantly. Everybody in the company walks around with the values on, on their badge as a reminder. And, and I think it's a way that we do things that we're all committed to and people are drawn to it. We're constantly bringing people in. I brought somebody in on my team and this person said, I've never met a company where the value stated and the alignment with what I felt with the people I was talking to was more connected. Well, to me, if you're doing something authentically, then it becomes naturally and people want to do it the right way. So we have such an opportunity in front of us. It's a generational market opportunity. We're so fortunate to have unbelievable customers that trust us around the world. You put those two things together, it enables us to work through things like a pandemic and go through the challenges of, of an early stage company because we know that if we stay committed to how we do things, we're going to survive and prosper. This is beautiful. So thanks for sharing it. You did mention leadership and I would like to 
pick your brain when it comes to new entrepreneurs. Not 15,000, not 20,000, not 30,000, just, you know, one, two, four guys that wants to make something new. What's your tip for those leaders? There is no one way of leadership. There was a time in my life where I probably had read every leadership book that was out there. I mean, like on bookshelves here and at home, people would ask me, have you read this fiction book? Have you read this book? I was sort of a little bit shy and being like, no, I'm pouring through things by, you know, Jack Welsh and John Chan and other, other leaders. That is my passion. That's what I was so focused on. In conversations and self-exploration and reflection and studying business and companies and other organizations, sports and entertainment and government, there is no one way. And so I think people need to understand who are they as people and what kind of leader are they? And then they need to be authentic with that type of person. I grew up playing competitive team sports. My vision is a coach. We take the field together. If we're bought into a common vision and we all play our roles, great things can happen. If we're not, you know, we're not going to achieve our success. But even if you look at coaches, there are those yellers and screamers, and I'm going to get more out of you because I'm going to push you. And that may work for certain people. I believe that tough love is the biggest motivator. I think about how I raise my kids. I love them more than anything in the world. I'm not soft with them, but everything I do comes from an intent of, I want them to succeed more than anything I want in the world. Well, that's very natural for me to apply that as a leader. And so if I have positive intent and we're bought in and I know potential because it's authentic to how I think about people are going to understand that when I'm being tough, the intent is not negative. So that's what works for me. And what I would encourage people to do is say, where have I been successful in my life and what led to that success? That's the person I am. You don't have to be someone else. So I would say, put down the book that says, here's how you need to do it. And instead, spend some time inside and reflect on where have you been successful and why, and use that and be who you are. And that is how I think you're going to get the most out of your leadership. Couldn't agree more. Definitely in the high-tech industry, if you will shout at people, I'm not sure that you'll have anyone to work with. Sure. Yeah. And Pete, look, we're human beings. How do people want to be treated? I mean, I'm fine with direct conversation, so long as I understand that someone's with me. If I understand someone's with me, you know, that's why we write down positive intent and if we don't have it, we're not going to get the most out of people. So, but again, there's more than one way to do it. Some people are more listeners. Some people are more extrovert communicators. I don't think there is one perfect way to do it. And I think too often I see examples of the celebrity CEOs and people saying, well, I'm going to be like that person. I think by definition, you're discounting who you could be as a leader if you're trying to be someone else. Being a human being, you also made mistakes. Can you share some of those with me? I don't know that we have enough time on, I'd, I'd probably say, making mistakes every single day. Look, I, I think I would also bridge to your last question on advice for people. Bad things are going to happen. The higher you are in the organization, the bigger percentage of your day is working through the bad stuff that other people haven't been able to, to solve. And so mistakes, conscious or subconscious, are going to happen in everything you do. Hiring decisions, strategic decisions, assessing how big of a problem is this. Maybe you discount it when it, you know, it was a bigger thing. And so I think true character is defined in how you deal with those. Culture and values are actually defined in moments of difficulty. I was at a venture capital event with a bunch of very famous company executives. 
and the topic of culture and values came up. They went around the table talking about how amazing, and these are, these are household names. They've all done amazing things. What they didn't know is Couchbase had gone through a very difficult period in those six months. And I was sitting there very quietly thinking about all these stories and these examples of culture and values. And they were all telling it from the vantage point of when things had gone really well. My guess is a lot of that was shaped in the early days when things weren't going well or mistakes were made. And those are the defining moments. And so I make mistakes every single day. Our leadership team makes mistakes. every. That's okay. Was the intent positive? And what do we do about it? Have a bias for action for fixing it, attack the next hard problem and do it in a way that you would be proud of telling somebody how you reacted. I think that is what I'm more focused on. And you know, I say a lot, deal with the world the way it is, not the way we want it to be. In the moment right now, let's not feel sorry for ourselves. Let's not get discouraged on you know, why we made the decision. I also like to remind people that, look, we made a decision at that point for a reason. So let's not beat ourselves up. Let's figure out how to move forward. So I spent a lot more time thinking about navigating forward and the implications on how effective we are, knowing that mistakes are going to happen across the board. Now, a CEO position is a very lonely one. On one end, you know, you get all the, uh, as you said, you have a good team and obviously uh, there are many good moments and mistakes are made. But at the end of the road, you are, you are the one who calls the shots and you need to, are, are you speaking to someone? Are you debating with, uh, beside your team, you know, like, like a mentor or are you walking in the woods or what, how do you... Uh, I feel like it's uh, a combination of those on, on, <laughs> on any given day. People often ask, you know, how do you describe the CEO job? And I say, it's chief strategy officer, chief culture officer, and chief worry officer. And no one talks about the third. There is a loneliness that comes with it that at the end of the day, most decisions after all the input that you've taken of the world come down to a person making a call. And there's a very famous CEO that I was fortunate to spend time with. And he said, knowing that that was going to be the case, his advice to people along the way is build up as many tools as you possibly can. You know, people, you know, decisions that have made, studying history. He said, because at the end of the day, when you're faced with a tough decision, after you've gotten all the advice from your board and your team, at some point, you're going to come into your office and you're going to shut the door and you're going to sit down with you and only you and you're going to have to make a decision. So knowing that's the inevitable spot, make sure that you have all the capabilities and knowledge and experience and reflection and practice. Another thing I like to say is never lose alone. We're very fortunate to have a great board of directors. I consult almost every decision with my team. I have this saying, good ideas can come from anywhere. You know, having that ability to go back and forth, knowing that I'm ultimately going to make the call, I think is really important. And then I have a group of friends and colleagues in this organization that I'm a part of, where we can go talk about the life aspects of that loneliness, a place where you can go and say, I'm sad, or I'm frustrated, or I don't feel like I'm winning, or I'm not the best husband or father or son because of the stress. And it's a place where you can share and talk openly and be vulnerable. And we're committed to one another, back to that unconditional love completely confidential. We're in different industries, but we come together and spend a lot of time talking about the stuff that's hard. And sometimes it's just helpful to know that you're not the only one going through it. So 
that ecosystem of help and I have an amazing, loving wife who I can talk about, you know, different perspectives. So I'm constantly trying to be really aware on where I'm not my best and who can be helpful with that and being super committed to exercises of mindfulness and self-awareness and personality and what are my motivations and triggers, everyday activity to deal with the dynamic, to make sure that I'm making the best decisions so that you know, our employees can be valued and, and we can create value. But I would not underestimate that task and the importance of really working at it proactively to show up as, as one's best self. Very nice. And, and tell me, how do you focus or maintain the balance between life and work? I'm a highly structured person, so I try to make sure I have routine to, to carve that out. People talk about a lot about mindfulness, you know, whether it's meditation or, or hobbies. I'm a big workout person. And so for better or worse, I, I feel better after I go punish myself running as hard as I can for as long as I can, or, you know, what I like to call wrestling gravity with high intense music that sort of brings me to a place where I'm thinking about, you know, nothing else. Uh, and then I'm very committed to my family schedule, making sure that I'm available on the weekends for my young kids that I don't miss the important activities. And then I sort of fill work around those other elements. But, you know, there's certain sacrifices to ensure that I'm showing up in the areas that I want to. And right now, obviously, my commitment to the company is immense. I've got to take care of myself so I can manage it. But then my next big bucket is family. I make sure that, you know, I schedule that time. And it's hard to say, are you really there? But just being present and making sure that, they know I'm there and we're doing the important things as a family, I think forces that balance to the fullest extent possible. And then I have people in my life that can tell me if I'm off on that, hey, you've traveled seven weeks in a row, you haven't slept, like we need to get some things back in check. And so having those checks and balances and having an amazing assistant who can help me get ahead of these things and say, hey, we're going into a rough patch here, be prepared. So constantly working on it and then sort of building a structure that allows me to uh, stay committed. I would like to go back a bit into, into Couchbase and, and the story of the company. What's the, um, the future? Why is it so exciting? We think we are in the very early innings of digital transformation. You can't pick an industry that I think is going to look fundamentally different in a few years than what it looks like today. Think about how we shop, how we travel, you know, how we entertain ourselves, how we receive healthcare, it's going to be fundamentally different. And we're only getting started on how technology is going to shape those industries. As we talked about, the critical path of enabling all of that is, is databases. And so if you look at the 60 plus billion dollars that are spent on databases, that does not include the adjacent areas like what's happening at the edge and analytics and you know, other technologies that make that happen the makeup of that spend and what it's going to enable is going to be fundamentally different. And so to be a player in that at scale that can continue to innovate and shape the future, I mean, that's the gift that not many people get to be a part of. And we at Couchbase take that very seriously. Now, if you think about emerging trends like 5G and connected everything and the edge and sensors and what is it all about? More data, more real-time access, which further drives the demands of databases. And we've built an architecture that allows us 
to address not only today's needs, but future needs with a cloud to edge approach for next generation applications. We're participating in the evolution of business and, and society, and we wake up every day inspired to solve those hard problems. It's incredibly exciting. We're in the very early innings of this tectonic shift in spend and how applications are, are going to shape our world. And we get to participate in that and enable it and, and drive it. And so we're incredibly fortunate to be at this point. It's on the backs of tremendous amount of hard work and sweat and dedication from hundreds, if not thousands of people and commitment from customers like you that have pushed us to, to be better. But we're, we're very inspired about the future and think we're you know, only getting started. I'm going back to your, your journey. Five years ago, you went in, you didn't have the, uh, you know, the access keys and stuff. Since then, you've raised a lot of money, you've IPO'd the company. Was there a point you said, I did it? Or you're still not there? Those moments, if they come, they don't last very long. Meaning, we got through this gate of the journey you know, let me take a drink of water and look around and all right, let's start running again. If there's ever a moment where I'm saying I've done it, then I probably don't have the mindset that I need to lead going forward. Another thing that's really important, how do you celebrate successes along the way? Successes, milestones, accomplishments. So I'm much better at convincing other people to do it than I am myself, to be, to be totally frank. I mean, I had a moment like even IPO day, people say, make sure you enjoy it. Well, behind the scenes, what they don't realize is the months leading up to that are sleepless nights and tremendous amount of work and drafting an S1 and thousands of meetings. And then you spend two weeks ahead of time in what they call the road show where you do hundreds of sessions with potential and future investors. Then the day of, you've got press stuff. And I mean, it's just a busy day. There was the moment when I went back to the hotel, you know, sort of when I was done with seven or eight press interviews after we had rang the bell and the employees were off celebrating, I just had a moment of, I'm here right now. I'm going to go spend some time with the employees, but just sort of a, an acknowledgement and that point of fulfillment, because I was so happy for other people, that actually drives more satisfaction for me than, than personal accolades. And so my celebration along the way is seeing other people enjoy their successes and, and what we enable. And I sort of have this vision that whenever it is, I'll look back and probably say, all right, yeah, there were a lot of things that I could be excited about, but for better or worse, often on, on to the next thing. Share me be, uh, with me a bit the life of a CEO before an IPO and after an IPO. Additional responsibilities that come with being a public company are real. You know, there's just the overhead of the reporting that you need to do, the time that you spend preparing for earnings calls that you spend with analysts and, and investors, how you talk about things and the decisions are more constrained by being a public company. At the same time, there are tremendous benefits. It provides you know, employees liquidity. You get a platform to talk about the company every quarter that, that you otherwise wouldn't. It's a lot of work. It's different work. And there are things that you just have to do but at the same time, we held ourselves to a pretty high standard as a private company in, you know, kind of quarterly results. So it's not as if it's free and easy ahead of time. And then, you know, on the other side, so I, I would say it's different, but I would not underestimate the challenge that comes with that additional work. And just the, it's like being in the ocean with the wave coming, 
you finish the quarter, then you get ready for earnings, then you do it, then you got like a few weeks before you're focused on closing the quarter and doing it. So the, the repetition and the amount of time that you're focused on that part of it, got to make sure that you're prepared for when you get there, you know, that the company is set up to, to spend time on things like that. I want to look back to the beginning of our conversation. You've mentioned the, the, the dialogue between yourself and your father. And this uh, young guy comes to you and tells you, okay, well, what should be my next move in my career? Should he go and study one of those four high-tech diplomas or should he go and, and, and uh, study psychology or what's your advice? Well, I'm going to be faced with that because like you, I've got more than one kid and I'm going to be having that, that conversation. I would say follow your passion. I, I think if you follow your passion and you're committed and you work hard, things are going to work themselves out. And I think despite the fact that we joke back and forth, I was pretty good at math. I liked sciences. So I think my dad was helping me, you know, with perspective. I think with my kids, I, I would try to give them a view, kind of a comprehensive view on the decisions they're making now and what those implications are. But I'm a big believer that if you stay committed to something and you work hard and you apply the gifts that you've been given, you can shape your life in the direction you want to, understanding what that passion is and the impact of the decisions you're making. Just be conscious about the life that you're choosing. Fulfillment should be the measure of success. And so I would be shaping, is this going to make you happy? Here's the path you're on. Is this going to make you fulfilled and satisfied with your life? Or is there something else that I need to help you connect the dots on? And you know, I think my dad helped me connect the dots in, in sort of a roundabout way. If I were counseling somebody, I would start with a whole bunch of questions. Who are people you admire? What is it about what they do in their life that looks so fulfilling? Well, let's plot a course. And does this feel like it's going to be really inspirational for you? If the answer is yes, and it's aligned to what you're good at, you're off to the races. I think where I see people get frustrated is they don't have that connection point and they don't understand why they're not fulfilled. Finding something you're great at, understanding the result of the decision. And if you connect those dots, it really doesn't matter what the path is. If you're committed to it and you work hard and you're persistent and you build structures around you to get the best out of who you are as a person, I think anything is possible for, for anyone. So very true. Now, Do you see the fact that you worked in large organization as something that contributed to your career? When you get to a large, successful organization and has often attracted exceptional people, I think they've been successful for a reason. They've gone through some of the mistakes that every company makes early on. And so I think there are benefits that you derive from being from you know, a large company, industry-leading practices, incredible talents, you know, resources for... You know, leadership development and those types of things, understanding scale, how do you get things done through you know, thousands of people. At the same time, I think you, you see sort of the downside of being big, complacency, lack of ownership. And so I don't think there's any one path. I think you need to realize where you are. And then you know, going back to the advice that I got, really study where you are in that moment and, and build up the tool set. I think there are things you can learn at a big company that would take you longer to learn if, if you didn't go to those. I choose to use that as an advantage to me. Would I be better or worse off if I hadn't gone that? You know, we'll, we'll, we'll never know. Yeah, um, I share many of your insights and I, and I agree with you. I think every experience is something that you learn from. Exactly. 
Matt, it was a pleasure. I really enjoyed the talk. It was great knowing you, uh, understanding how you took uh, this uh, small company into being something very meaningful in the market. I feel that uh, you're doing amazing thing. And uh, thank you for sharing uh, your thoughts and your beliefs. My pleasure. Honored to be spending the time with you. Always a pleasure. Hopefully, next time we talk, we'll be able to be in person. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Sharlin, directly on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.